sticks, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hug the government love. The government hug the government love. The government Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorf, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University, and I'm joined by Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. Michael, it's wonderful to be doing the show, you and me, for once today. Yeah, it's been a while. I'm looking forward to it, Trey. Yeah, normally it is Mike and myself, but Mike is out of the country involved in some kind of terrorist activity. No, no, nothing like that. Um, wait, 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 you mean Ken and yourself? Let's not, let's not, let, let's not make me involved in this whole nexus of, of God knows what. But yes, Ken is, <laughs> Ken is off doing other things, and I'm happy to, to step in and do the show with you, Trey. Absolutely. That's wonderful. But I've heard that we actually, additionally, another exciting point for this week is we have some new supporters. So, uh, Mike, who's, who's our new supporters yeah, we this do. week? Um, uh, we have, well, Jason, who's not a new supporter. He's a previous supporter on Patreon who recently increased his level of support for the show. Uh, so thank you very much, Jason. And also we have Andra, who's not only a new supporter, but she's our newest executive producer on the show. And so we're really excited to welcome her. And in her, uh, in her pledge of support, she wrote, what I appreciate most about your show is that despite your ideological differences, you and the others maintain respect and appreciation for each other. We need more of that in today's culture and political climate. So I thought that was really nice. So That's thank so you for sweet. Much. Yeah, absolutely. We appreciate and of course, that. you know, Trey, when, when you become a monthly sustaining supporter of the show on Patreon, it, it's more than just a little shout out you get. Uh, all supporters at any level get access to our weekly bonus show, which you and I, of course, are going to do right after we're done recording this show. And there's a, a bunch of other things, mugs, tote bags, special access, a, a bunch of stuff. And to find out what all of it is, you can just go to patreon.com slash politics guys. And it's all laid out for you right there. It's a lot of fun. And I'm hoping you will uh, join. So supporters, others, why don't we talk about the stories of the week? And I think this week, Mike, one of the biggest issues has been the question about citizenship on the census. And this is something that Jay and Mike talked about, but this week there's been some new developments. I want to kind of run through a little bit of that. Uh, Last week, the Supreme Court, to bring you back up to speed, blocked a census question that asks, is this person a citizen of the United States? Why? Well, the Supreme Court did give the administration an opportunity to try this question again, if it could come up with a more persuasive argument. The majority on the court saw the reasoning from government as basically being more or less not true and therefore not valid grounds to add it to the census. So as a result of that finding, and then as a result of the fact that we have a timetable, you got to print these things up, you got to get them out. uh, And it's 2019, this has to happen in 2020. Um, A number of uh, Trump administration officials, including Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross, uh, said on Tuesday that they were going to go ahead with the 2020 census without including the citizenship question. This gets reported. This week, then, Trump tweeted, I always feel like I'm leading with that, that this was all (laughs) fake news. As a matter of fact, on the 3rd, Trump tweeted, quote, the news reports uh, about the Department of Commerce dropping its quest to put the citizenship question on the census is incorrect or to state differently, fake. We are absolutely moving forward as we must because of the importance of the answer to this question. And then on the 4th, he writes, quote, so important for our country that the very simple and basic are you a citizen of the United States question be allowed to be asked in the 2020 census. Department of Commerce and Department of Justice are working hard on this, even on the 4th of July. So what are the alternatives? Well, one of the big ones here is the thought that there could be an executive order to place it on the 2020 census. So Mike, what do you think of this pushback from Trump in the face of even his administration? And what do you think as a policy development between the Supreme Court and the president if he goes ahead with an executive order on this issue? Well, I think to the first question you asked, Trey, part of it's this is just classic, classic Trump, uh, right? The, the Supreme Court issues its ruling, the, the administration, the professionals in the administration who actually understand more than a few things about government say, well, Given this, there is just simply no way that we can stay within the law and actually do what the president or what Wilbur Ross would like us to do. Then the president talks to some, you know, 
far-right conservative folks, reads a column by Hugh Hewitt in the Washington Post, or I don't know, maybe has it summarized to him or something, and says, <laughs> no, darn it, we're going to do this, and uh, it's going to happen. Uh, so, I mean, even apparently, you know, his attorney general said, well, we can't do this. It's, it's find a way. So, you know, as to the executive order thing, I, I think there's a there's this idea about executive orders in the administration and maybe more widely that is simply incorrect. An executive order is not a sort of a automatic pass to do whatever you want. I mean, certainly Donald Trump can issue an executive order, but that's not magic. Uh, an executive order in this case can't override the Administrative Procedure Act, which is, by the way, legislation passed by Congress which calls for notice and comment, uh, and that the proposed regulation can't be arbitrary or capricious. Now, some people might say, well, what about the wall? He issued an executive order there. Yes, but that's a different situation because he first declared a national emergency. National emergency powers are different things because once that's invoked, then the president can draw on other specific powers that Congress has granted him in the case of national emergencies, like the military construction authority to build a wall and so forth, so forth. And so, I think this idea that an executive order somehow is a is an end around around Congress or the Constitution is just simply, you know, fanciful and and just is not going to work actually. No, and and it's a good point to kind of put executive orders into context because they are not very well understood policy devices. Even I think in some cases, Mike, I don't know if you'll agree with this or not, but among scholars, uh, as a matter of fact, we're not, we still are trying to kind of figure out as scholars, when are executive orders used? You know, the kind of the, the standard model is that executive orders happen uh, as a way to kind of have that, as you were calling it, an end run around Congress as one model. Another is it's kind of a persuasive tool. Uh, but there's been even more recent uh, research that suggests that presidents use them more often when they're less popular. But generally, this is what we're talking about between Congress and the president. In this case, we actually have the president, Trump in this case, uh, taking a look at going around a decision by the Supreme Court. So what do you think about kind of the executive order targeting the court? Because I see that as being a bit unique, a bit new in this particular instance, or do you think not? Well, yeah, yeah I, see, I see your point, and I think you're, I think you're right about that. And so, but it seems to me that, you know, certainly the president can issue an executive order on this, but then it will, of course, be challenged. It'll go back to the courts, and so we'll be back where we started, essentially, and there will be some judge who will issue, you know, uh, uh, who will issue a, a temporary injunction. And so the, the question, the citizenship question won't be able to go out on there. And in fact, we know that the Commerce Department or is already, the Census Bureau is already printing out the questionnaires without the citizenship question. So to me, honestly, Trey, I think this is really more a political theater thing. It doesn't really matter in, in a sense. I think at least to President Trump, whether or not, this happens or not. I think to me, it's just good strategy with his base, certainly saying, you know, I'm going to do everything I can to fight to include this question. Another way to look at it potentially, a way less flattering to the president is maybe this means he's easy to manipulate. So he's kind of going along with what the what his advisors say. Then all of a sudden, some people on the right say, hey, if you do this, you're going to look weak. You're going to look like the president's favorite word, a loser if you do this. And so well, I can't do that, you know, and so, well, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to do something about it. So I don't know if that's the case, certainly, but it sure seems to me to be a common theme that Donald Trump is desperate to not look weak or not look like a loser. And it really doesn't matter what the law says or what makes sense or what's even in the best interest of the American people. What's important is how Donald Trump looks. Now, and, and that's a good point, because I think on a lot of these stories, one of the things that Ken and I often have trouble with is separating the person, Trump, from the presidency. And that's, as a matter of fact, a difficult thing as a scholar, a student of the presidency, right? There's the person and the institution of the sure. president. And so that kind of brings me to this next point, which is 
as we kind of as we kind of pull back a little bit and look at the census question and the possibility of an executive order, this threat from Donald Trump that we have fake news and we clearly don't, uh, as a question about presidential power, because again we're having a moment where a president is taking, as we're noting here, a very strong stance, and it wasn't that many years ago that Republicans, my party, uh, was were pushing against a lot of Obama ter- uh, tenure executive orders because they saw this as being too broad a sweep of presidential power. And back then I mentioned it, I'm going to mention it again here is, and you kind of know, well, it's not going to be that big of a deal. And and probably on this particular point, it won't be a big deal. But in the broad stroke here, as we back up, is this idea that we're comfortable with presidents threatening and implementing um, executive orders every time they can't win in any other avenue of yeah. government and yeah. our party just being wi- the party's being willing to go along to it isn't this a small tiny chink but a chink to the detriment of the larger political system absolutely. that's really what i kind of worry about yeah absolutely you know you and justin amash right i mean i know we're going to talk about him uh, on the bonus show leaving the uh, republican party and that's exact he wrote a he wrote a great op-ed in the washington post that i completely agreed with. And, uh, you know, we should probably link to it because he makes exactly those points that, that you make, Trey. It's not surprising because you're both, you know, libertarians. Yes. And so, but in that sense, I agree with both of you. And this is just, it's sure it's one chink, but we've seen both parties basically say, well, what matters really is we get the result we want and we're not going to worry about separation of powers or or too much presidential power. And I think that's such a huge mistake. And this is just one more example of it. And and I'm I'm in total agreement with you on this. Absolutely. Well, and, and one of the things that kind of deeply bothers me is that the forms here matter so much. As a matter of fact, uh, I couldn't help. I had to look it back up, listeners. Uh, do you remember the, the 1953 quote from Justice uh, Robert Jackson when he's talking about the Supreme Court? He says the Supreme Court, quote, we are not final because we are infallible, but we are only infallible because we are final. Yep. And yep. there's truth in that because once you kind of break the institutional bonds that hold the system together, even if you're just doing it once as an aberration, you ultimately create a precedent for future presidents to move forward. And it's one of the things that I really want to complain to many on the left about is to say, you were happy when Obama did it. And that precedent, I don't, I'm not saying he went to the same extent as, as Donald Trump is here, President Trump is, uh, but those precedents have lasting consequences. So yeah. again, on this particular policy matter, will it matter for the census? Is this question going to show up? Probably not. You know, but yeah, will it have a bigger well, matter? Yeah, well, there's, there's one other point I think that deserves to be mentioned on this story is that, of course, I'm sure you're familiar with this and maybe some listeners are as well. But, you know, one of the main reasons the census is so important is for redistricting. And, you know, Donald Trump, recently said on Friday, actually said, you know, you need it for Congress, for for districting. And he said, how many people are there? Are they citizens? Are they not citizens? You need it for many reasons. And what I read into this, and maybe I read too much into this, but in some circles on the right, there's an argument that representation in Congress should be based on the population of eligible voters and not all citizens. Yes. Now, obviously, that would be a huge advantage to Republicans, a huge disadvantage to Democrats. The Supreme Court's never actually ruled on that. But well, in in Texas, there was there was a ruling two years ago, uh, mm-hmm. uh, Michael, suggesting that they, Texas was attempting to not do it based on population, but rather on right. uh, voter count, and that did get turned uh, overturned. Right, and so and, you know, to me, it seems it, rightly so because I, I went back. To look at the Constitution, you know, it's not just it's not just on people on the right who go back to the Constitution. But I mean, it seems to me, Article One, Section Two, Clause Three, you know, representatives and direct taxes shall be apportioned among the several states which may be included within this union according to their respective numbers. Uh, and you know, I mean, the Constitution I think is pretty clear on this. And again, to me, and this is this is one of my it's more than a pet peeve, Trey. It's a it's a deep concern where both sides say, well, what's my preferred outcome and how can I manipulate the constitutional order? How can I manipulate the law to achieve that outcome? How can I game the system? And I think I think people on both both sides should be deeply troubled by that. 
it, it's very much agreed. And, and I like the way that you went back because, again, when you're taking a look at this kind of issue, it's easy to want to look back at a law or a framer and construe it in a way that is positive to you. But let's be honest, yeah. the idea of you know, highlighting citizenship as being this really important political concept comes much, much later in U.S. history. And you might still think it's a good thing. So listeners, I'm not saying that you can't say, look, that's what we ought to do. But let's not try to rewrite what happened in the past. Yes. I mean, we can just say, hey, they were wrong, right? You know, they should have cared about. Now, I disagree with that. But that's that's what fundamentally frustrates me on a number of these issues. Absolutely. Let's call the past out where it's wrong, if you think it's wrong, as opposed to trying to manipulate it into a way that, you think gives credence to your position. Yeah. I mean, because on the constitution, it clearly says the, the, the count is of the whole number of free persons. So as long as you're not a slave and nobody is, then you're, you're counting that. And, and you're right. If you think there's a legitimate reason to change that well, hey, there's a process for that. It's called the amendment process. And if you think you can get the, you get the votes, you know, more power to you, but uh, don't read, don't read your own policy preferences into the document. Absolutely. Exactly. Well, I think what we should move forward to now, Mike, is a kind of related story in a way, because of the device that might actually happen here. And that is uh, Trump's kind of unorthodox push for lower drug prices. Uh, As a matter of fact, for over a year now, uh, Trump again and again again has been kind of pushing for this. And now this particular in the past month or so has come to the fore. And this week again has come to the fore as it it becomes clear that President Trump sees this as a winning 2020 issue. Uh, He seems to be pushing for importation from Canada, uh, but this puts him in opposition with his um, health and human uh, services director, uh, who would rather have a more pro-market-ish approach. Uh, his former HHS director, who also, or his HHS director, who's a former president at Eli, Eli Lilly, Lilly and yeah. a pharmaceutical <laughs> industry lobbyist. So yeah. So there's definitely some, uh, we, we'll need to talk about that here. Now, what's 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 kind of the two points here, though, is he's also been listening to uh, current Florida governor, new governor, uh, Ron DeSantis. He became governor right after I fled the state for Oklahoma. Uh, in, in part, I don't know why. Uh, but anyway, uh, because he has actually been pushing for lower drug prices uh, from Canada, that we should actually pull this in as our uh, the, the head. He sees this as kind of being a, a gimmick. So we have a lot of questions here, including what is Trump going to do with this? Is this, is there a real push happening here or not? And just this morning, as a matter of fact, we had a tweet and a little bit of information about a favored country status proposal from Trump. So Mike, why don't you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Well, what the president's saying that he's putting together this executive order that would essentially declare a favored nations clause for drug prices, meaning that the U S would pay no more than the country that has the lowest prescription drug prices for whatever that drug is. And I read that and I thought, oh my gosh, there are there are GOP caucus heads that are exploding right now because you talk about an anti-market type of uh, setup. I mean, I can't imagine anything that's, to me, I was going to advocate for, and I've long been an, ad, an advocate for, allowing Medicare to directly negotiate prices. I would argue that, in fact, that's pro-market because buyers buyers regularly negotiate prices with sellers but but saying that well we're not going to pay any more than this price that t- totally takes out any market mechanism that's about the least kind of conservative at least in economic in the economic sense the conservative thing that that I could actually imagine and I was I won't say I was stunned by a tray because Donald Trump just, you know, he's a very outcome oriented person. He wants lower prescription drug prices. I don't think he really cares about any particular economic theory or believes in it. He just knows that this is a winning campaign issue. It matters to the people who are likely to vote for him and the people he needs. And so he wants to give it to them by any means necessary. Agreed. I don't see this as being a big shock. I I don't understand how some Republicans continue to be shocked that he is not doctrinaire 
on some of our central tenets. I mean, one of the reasons libertarians and Republicans caucus together so closely is we have traditionally shared uh, market values. Now, sometimes we want to go to different links on that market, but never be that as it may, uh, this kind of underlying idea of free trade. But this is this is this is President Trump, the guy who has walked away from free trade deals. Yeah, uh, this is the one who he wants to put up trade barriers. He tweets about how we're going to be winning again because we're going to kind of back in a mercantilist system. So it, so for me, I'm not really shocked that uh, Donald Trump, President Trump, is, is willing to kind of stray off the traditional. In all honesty, I mean, what's more interesting is where he, he doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> not, yeah. not where he does. <clears throat> um, but now, Mike, one of the things that has kind of come out of this, and it made me kind of reevaluate one of the elements of Trump that I think is a positive, at least in a campaign sense. And you've said this now twice on two of these stories. He sees this as being a winning issue. Uh, and, and according to a lot of sources, when Azar has come to Trump, you know, trying to explain how he's going to bring drug prices down, Trump has repeatedly told him, quote, this is according to the Washington Post, uh, quote, I don't understand a word you're saying and no one <laughs> else will either, end quote. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, the. I will say that they've tried to do some things. For instance, approval of generic drugs has apparently gone a lot uh, more expeditiously than it has in the past. And I think other things being equal, that's certainly a good thing. But the, and drug you know, prices and ads. Yeah, but well, that that to me, I think that is totally pointless because people don't care what the list price of a drug is. What people care about is what am I going to pay? For this drug after my copay or what have you kicks in. And of course, you can't have that information in an ad. There'd be no way to know because of all the different insurance companies and plans. I should point out, hey, if we had a single insurer Medicare for all program, you could do that. And, <laughs> yeah, you know. But I, I don't I think, you know, as our even if I assume he has the best intentions in the world, you have to look at his background. He came up looking at the world through the perspective of Eli Lilly through big pharma. And so it, it's tough to switch gears on that. I mean, I don't, there's this, this phrase and I'm sure personnel is policy. I don't necessarily believe that entirely, but certainly that affects policy a whole lot. And I think that's why Trump is not getting what he wants from Azar because, you know, Azar is a, is a lily guy, is, is a big pharma guy. And so if you want the lower drug prices, you're not going to get them with that guy in charge of things, I don't think. Not because he's a bad guy, but just because I think it's harder for him to kind of wrap his head around a different worldview. Agreed. And and that's where I think Trump actually might have some of an advantage here that that I think many don't give him. I probably have not given him enough credit for myself is I think he views the world a whole more like. Uh, I don't want to say an average citizen. But no, no, I just he, mean, yeah, he, he, I agree. So it's not an insult to the average citizen, but just he, he tries to get things in kind of these digestible quick chunks. And I think many of us are quick. Uh, who, those of us who kind of see the world in nuance are quick to attack that. Um, and whether you agree with Azar's point of view or not, I think he's holding the view, you know, holding views like that, that are, that are uh, biased, but nuanced and Trump can't see that. But I, I see that it probably as being to Trump's advantage as we move into 2020. I mean, when you take a look, when you compare what he's saying here, let's have an executive order, favors country status, quicker, boom, done, to what anybody on the left is suggesting about drug prices, which seems scary and complicated. You know, and again, to me, this kind of tying back to our previous discussion, this to me seems to be an inappropriate uh, use of executive order and executive overreach, I, I would argue that there's only certainly that would be challenged in the courts. Uh, the pharmaceutical industry, I'm sure, <laughs> has their briefs already prepared. But uh, there's only so much you can do without legislation. There's only so much you should do without legislation. Now, I'm a person of the left. That's a deeply conservative sort of idea. I'm that kind of weird, you know, Berkey and liberal. That's the bizarre combination. But and of course, the problem here is that essentially the policy window is now closed due to the 2020 presidential campaign. And think about how bizarre that is, Trey, right? Because it's like 18 months before the election mm -hmm. and we really have no legitimate shot 
at anything happening because, of course, there's not a filibuster-proof majority in the in the Senate and certainly the House controlled by the Democrats, and they have no interest whatsoever in giving Donald Trump anything that would look good for his reelection. And that's that's how it works. I don't think sometimes that people appreciate how narrow the window to get major policy changes made is. And because of that, you have presidents like Donald Trump, I would argue even to a greater extent than Barack Obama, but Obama as well, and you know, presidents of both parties relying more and more on these executive orders. And that's a that's a big problem. Yeah, as a matter of fact, there's a there's a famous political science, William Howe, who argues that the, the president's biggest power is his ability to have direct action, to issue things like direct orders. And for a long time, I think what there has been a at least in both policy and academic circles, an unfortunate distinction between what presidents can do and what they ought to do. And I think what we're seeing here is a president who is pu- pushing these powers in ways that the that the average institutionalized president would not. But there's really no, there has not been a big pushback on these powers, just kind of a, a wink that presidents wouldn't do it. And yeah. you're right, because these windows are so small, if you're not part of the wink, I'm not going to do these things, not because I can't, but because I just think that's the bad idea, there's really no, there's no great mechanism currently to, to, to stop it. And, and that has long troubled me. I, I think as, as scholars, we did not take a strong enough normative stance on that, uh, on executive powers, because we kind of assumed that there would be the good guy in office or, or, or yeah. effectively the framers problem, the, well, Washington's going to be president, so it'll be okay. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> worked for eight. Yeah. Worked for eight years, but you know, then yeah, exactly. No, I'm with you on that trade for sure. Well, why don't we move kind of away from Donald Trump, Mike, because, you know, he's taken up a lot of the show so far, but he Thank always you. does. <laughs> and let's move to something tangential to that. Uh, and I think something that maybe many of our listeners may or may not, depending on which side of the aisle you're on, been paying attention to. Uh, and that's something that's been getting a lot of play on the left, maybe not quite as much on the right. And that was a ProPublica story. Uh, that released this week on a private Facebook group titled 1015. And that's uh, that's actually code for aliens in custody. Uh, and it's what it is, is a, is a private Facebook group for former and current Border Patrol agents. And according to reports on this, a lot of time was actually spent joking about the death of migrants, um, throwing burritos at Latino members of Congress, um, and some particularly vulgar illustrations of Congresswomen, uh, specifically um, Cortez. Uh, as a matter of fact, if you if you look this up, I'm just forewarning you now. Uh, some of them you might find it uh, highly offensive. I, I know yeah. that I did too. Uh, but I just want to uh, put that out there for listeners. Uh, so in short, there's a lot of disturbing material on this private Facebook site, and it has led to a push, in this case primarily from the left, um, that says that, well, look, this is the actual underlying problems with the Customs and Border Protection, right? These guys are actually horrendous racists, and this proves it. Um, Yet there is some commonality here from when the right was uh, uh, blasting on a couple of FBI agents, um, Stroik and Page. The intensity between their text messages was left, uh, but there's some commonality here. And so, Mike, I, I mean, one thing that's interesting is just kind of the social media aspect of this. Uh, but another aspect here is I think we're really having a conversation about to what extent does your private speech does it stand for, should it stand for the position that you're holding and therefore tie into your job as a civil servant? This is a complicated issue. I think we might have to talk about this for a minute. So that's a kind of a big question. What do you want to say yeah. about that, Mike? Well, you know, I guess first I should point out that apparently the Border Patrol has known about this for a while. There was a February 2018 memo from Matthew Klein, who was the assistant commissioner of their Office of Professional Responsibility. And and in this memo, it read in part, uh, recently the agency was made aware of a private Facebook group page that only a specific group of CBP employees could access on which inappropriate offensive posts were made. Uh, it goes on to say the bottom 
bottom line is the agency may bring discipline against an employee who posts offensive messages on a social media page where there is a nexus to the agency workplace. Now, I'm not exactly sure what a nexus to the agency workplace is. Ken would probably be of a better uh, legal interpretation of the nexus, but I, I guess I see the I see the point, and I understand the tension here, right? Because certainly, as an as an individual, uh, as a as a free individual, you have the right to whatever kind of views that you have, even if they're even if they're sexist or racist, or or even if they're hate speech. And I would say, you know, what what is a cartoon of President Trump having forced sex with Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez? That if if not hate speech, that that to me is kind of the epitome. Mm-hmm. of hate. But, you know, there's a reason we have a First Amendment. But I also think that the question you need to ask is, does this have an effect on not just the person's ability to do their job, because you can be a hateful, racist person and do your job perfectly well. I, I absolutely accept that. But the other part of this, it seems to me, is how does it affect the public trust and the public perception. And that matters too. And Mm -hmm. that's a very tangible and important thing. And I I would agree that if the public feels that if people dealing with the border patrol have reason to believe that they are, you know, a a hateful, uh, discriminatory, bad people in that sense, when regards to, when in regards to undocumented immigrants, then that's a real problem. And the agency apparently can and, and, and should uh, I take disciplinary action against folks who uh, make those kind of comments. And and this connects to this question of speech on social media and how it changes the way that we communicate with one another. Now, I, I want to put a huge caveat before I say this, uh, but, you, you know, I'm an academic, have been, this is actually going to be my, this fall is my ninth year uh, post-PhD teaching at, uh, at um, institutions of higher education. And there, I'm sure Mike, maybe disagree with me, agree with me, but there have been a number of Decembers and a number of Mays where uh, what myself and a colleague was saying about, say, students, <laughs> you know, it, it, was, it was difficult. It was a bad time. Something was going on. And, and you know, those things come out, right? Yeah. I can't believe that students did this or that, but those things die as soon as they come out because it's just into the air. It's not something that anybody would, you know, write down. I'm not going to send a memo and say, can you believe whatever did? And again, I'm not suggesting that, um, academics are making, you know, racist comments behind everybody's back, but rather what I think is interesting here is that I don't think anybody on this Facebook page thought this was ever going to come up because I think they saw this as being a completely private space, like having the office door close and venting uh, about something. And so Mike, what do you think about how do we think about what's private and public speech in this kind of area of area of social media, because it's becoming, you know, a text message. I mean, in the case uh, sure. earlier, we think of that as being a particularly private institution. I think most people do, even though they don't realize that those those text messages are actually they are plain text for your yeah. provider. I mean, you know, Verizon, AT&T, they're getting those plain text people, by the way. They can read that and you get a warrant for it and that comes out. But we kind of have an expectation that that's private. Do you think that plays a part here in this conversation? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, for myself personally, the rule that I have learned to live by is I don't put anything in any form of digital communication or print communication, whether it's even old fashioned, that I would have difficulty explaining to the entire world. And if you can't do that, I think you're setting yourself up for problems. But my concern with with that, I mean, there's that aspect of it. But then there's the, oh, so what you're saying is that it's okay to be a racist. Just do it in a way where you can't be caught. Caught. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And no, I'm not saying that at all. I think I think some of those images and things were just reprehensible. And, you know, the uh, DHS's inspector general is doing an investigation and I'm not going to 
I'm not going to rush to judgment here. I want to see what the conclusions of the investigation are. But but it, it certainly seems to me, based on the incomplete picture I have, that they have brought uh, dishonor on the agency and they've affected the agency's ability to uh, come to to fulfill its mission. And I think that's a, that's a disciplinary worth uh, offense, to say the least. Now. And this is something that kind of always troubles me a little bit, and, and I think this story kind of brings it to the fore. Do you think that one of the things that kinds of shocks us, I mean, one of the one of the purposes of this show is to have rational and civil debate between people who are very thoughtful, but have uh, sometimes deep disagreements between issues. Sure. And I think maybe sometimes we're a little shocked by the level of, at least I, w- I will say that I am shocked uh, by the level of crassness um, and the level of hate that we, you, know, you see on these kinds of mediums. Do you think it's the media, it's the medium itself, or do you think this has always been present in people? And we're just now getting a deeper look into it. In other words, if there was no Facebook, would these individuals still yeah. be having these kinds of views, or do you, or or not? Yeah, I mean, I mean, absolutely. I, I think I think they they certainly would. They they have and they they continue to do that. I mean, you know, certainly as as academics, we have uh, something of a sheltered existence in ways. But, you know, just like you, I, I wasn't always an academic, obviously, mm-hmm. uh, spending time in the military. And I worked in uh, construction and some other jobs for, for a little while. And, you know, you hear how how real people, normal people, we're the weird ones, Trey, how normal <laughs> people talk about things. And, you know, that that's why when I hear folks talk about how racism and sexism are sort of things, the past, the, the ridiculous argument, well, you know, we elected an African-American as president, so we must not have racism problems. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Go, go, go work on a construction site for a few weeks and then come back and tell me how we don't have racism. That's so, I mean, it certainly, I would argue that things are better than they have been in the past, and we're generally moving in the right direction. But the idea that we don't have these problems and they don't make a real difference, negative difference in the lives of women and minorities is, I think, just completely ill-conceived and wrong-headed. I, I, I deeply agree with that. And that's, I think, one of the areas where my libertarianness comes out, Mike. Uh, I, yeah. Yeah. Yes, I, wholeheartedly, yes. But here's what I want to kind of circle onto and finish and why I push on that. And that is the size of this Facebook group, the number of current and former agents. My question is, even if they take action, what does this mean that these were the best people that they could get for these jobs? Yeah, that's a good point. And what would they do? Like, so in other words, you, you, let's say we fired every single one of these people and they're gone. The same hiring practices that put them in presumably will still be there. Yeah. Will well, I, yeah. Well, I, I also think, you know, and and this is again thinking about human nature. You put people in a decent, presumably decent people. And I just I always try to start from a sense of presuming decency on people in a situation where they're overwhelmed, where they're dealing with just an uh, an impossible situation on a regular basis. It becomes, I think, not right, but it becomes at least intellectually understandable how those people in those positions can come to disdain or even hate the folks that are that they incorrectly see to be causing their problems. You know, you mentioned the academic things. We talk about students sometimes at the end of the semester when we're overwhelmed with grading could be like, oh my God, doesn't anyone teach the plural possessive anymore? You know, (laughs) now that's a, that's a, obviously that's a super light version of this, but I think it's the same basic concept when you're just burned out and overwhelmed, those sort of less good aspects of our nature come out. So I would argue that, the bigger problem here is that I would say that the Border Patrol is almost certainly composed of mostly very good folks who are being asked to do too much with too little. And so the way to address this, I would say, in a more in a more basic, fundamental way, is 
to look at our border patrol situation, to look at our rules about asylum. And, and we really need legislative action on this for a lot more resources and a reworking of the entire system. I wholeheartedly agree. I have I, I, I hate the current way that we deal with immigration. And I recognize listeners, and this is one of the things that I know many of uh, many listeners disagree with me on. You know, I, I have a relatively radical set of views on this, but I think this is what happens when we attempt to somehow pretend that we can filter people in and out as opposed to just having a system of counting the people coming in and not trying to worry about, well, we're going to let you in, not you in. You're going to count. You're not going to count. Uh, I, I don't think that's a long-term sustainable position. I think that's what you're seeing here is the is the backup and the sludge result of trying to put a kink yeah. in those tubes when we have so many institutional reasons uh, pulling people here. And unless you want to just destroy the United States, we're going to continue to pull people here because we do things well. <laughs> yeah. And uh, but I, re I recognize that 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 puts me at odds from many on yeah. both the left and the right. Yeah, I would say I'm I, even even with me, while I agree with some of those points, I am not as comfortable with I would not say that you're totally open borders. You'd stop the bad hombres, that sort of thing. You know, kind of, <laughs> there would be checks and so forth. But certainly you are more comfortable with, I would guess, with much higher levels of immigration than I would be okay with. But I'm comfortable with much higher levels of immigration than, say, certainly than President Trump and a lot of folks on the right would yep. be okay with. So there you go. I think we have time for one more story, Mike. And that is one that I'll be honest, I, I think you probably are going to agree on this. I didn't think we were going to be talking about busing on the politics guys in for yeah, 2020. The, the 70s called. They want their policy back. You <laughs> yeah, know? this, this mean... history. Like this, I feel like I should be... But here we are. And and, uh, and I, I think it's it is worth talking about for a, a couple of reasons. But let's kind of get there. Uh, what happened was, is that there was a Biden Harris back and forth at the last DNC uh, debate. And one of the big issues here is about whether or not we should have. Uh, uh, busing. And that re what this really is, uh, listeners, is, is a stand in question for race. Uh, Kamala Harris confronted Biden on this issue and and she turned it into a very much a capturable YouTube. I'm going to call this a YouTube moment where yeah. she says, look, Biden, you were against busing and busing's what fixed it. And by the way, I'm the little girl that 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 got fixed. Now, that's an interesting story in and of itself. But the aftermath has been equally worthwhile, and that's because the Biden-Harris Biden camps are kind of fighting over this. Does the past matter? How much does the past matter? You know, what, what Biden supported in 1970, should that really be an issue for moving forward into 2020? But it's also kind of come to kind of bite at Harris a little bit this week, uh, because as she's been faced with the question, well, oh, do you support busing? And she won't give an unequivocal yes after taking Biden to task. Instead, she says, yeah. quote, it should be in the toolbox, end quote. Um, so she doesn't specifically back federal mandated busing because, quote, she doesn't see integration as being the same problem, end quote. So I guess if I want to kind of sum this up for you, Mike, is do you think Biden is woke enough to be the Democratic nominee? <laughs> and isn't that really what this is all about? <laughs> well, you know, I would say it's all about uh, putting on my cynical hat, which is always pretty much pretty close to my head. Um, I would say that this is likely to be at least in large part about Harris looking at the polling numbers, seeing that Biden is doing, I think, best of all the Democratic candidates among African-Americans. Uh, he's the top candidate uh, in general, of course, and then trying to find a wedge issue. Right now, busing is a bizarre wedge issue because it's not even really so much of a thing anymore. By I mean, it was a thing in the 70s and the 80s, but really by the 90s, a lot of places had stopped doing it. In fact, because a lot of leaders in some of the communities where they were doing it, including African American leaders, were saying this is not working for us, not doing what we wanted to do. Um, and you know, to to be a little clear about Biden's position on this, he was absolutely for desegregation, but yes. he didn't believe that busing was the right way to do it. And on the policy issue, I'm absolutely with Joe Biden. I mean, I think that school busing uh, is highly problematic. In fact, I, I, I want to make, Trey, a liberal argument 
against busing. Even I okay. would say a far left argument against busing. I'll go further left than I normally go, probably than this. Um, and that busing is just a band aid. What what are we trying to achieve? Well, we're trying to achieve integration, less segregation in schools, which I think is a laudable goal. But the real issue here, the way we're trying to do it by taking kids and sending them whatever across town into this artificial environment, that's bizarre and wasteful. The real issue here is two issues, really. Number one, how we fund schools, the ridiculous property tax based system, which ensures that richer communities are going to get better schools and also our race segregated neighborhoods. The issues we need to be working on is are desegregating our neighborhoods. I mean, we have so many, I, this has been a bigger and bigger problem over time, right? Where we have neighborhoods that are so incredibly segmented by income and by race and Rich people on both sides, wealthy people, upper middle class people on both sides talk about how they care about the poor and care about minorities. But, you know, we don't want to live next to them or anything <laughs> like that because that would affect our housing prices. And so I'm calling BS on both sides here, at least a lot of folks in both sides. The real answer to get to get integrated schools is to have integrated mixed development neighborhoods. And that's something that a lot of people with money just don't want because they can talk a good game. But when push comes to shove, oh, no, we don't want those those poor, funny looking people living next to us. Well, and you don't have to look any further than what happened with trying to get people into the best schools, right? Let's yeah. cheat, mm -hmm. steal and do everything yeah. else so that we don't have to mix with just anyone. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and they, of course, will say, well, you know, it's because I care about my my kids and so forth. But, you know, I, I would say the answer is not uh, what's often been called white flight, but the answer is staying and working to change the system for everyone. But but, you know, it's, maybe that's asking too much. And I don't know. But and of course, some would say, well, it's easy, easy for me to talk. I don't have any kids, you know, <laughs> and so that's true. You know, the, the only thing I've done is I sent my dog to, you know, my dog Buffy to uh, the, the, the canine school. But it wasn't a very good school, but, you know, she did OK. I don't know. But anyway, point being is I think that the real issue here is our incredibly segregated neighborhoods. And until we deal with zoning and land use and those kind of NIMBY problems, I think that we're just putting a Band-Aid over the real problem here. That is that is a worthwhile argument, Mike. Um, and, and I think there's a lot of truth in what you're saying. And it. <laughs> And this is one, this is an area I think where we libertarians end up outflanking the left on yeah, the left. Yeah, yeah, good point. And, and I think the reason for that is, is that we have long been comfortable, a little more comfortable with being weird. And, and <laughs> <laughs> you know, we, we, we really kind of embrace this idea that what comes out of weirdness is really great things. You kind of put people together and they do weird and crazy things and you, and you want to be around people who are doing other weird and crazy things because who knows what will come out of that. And I think your point about the Kins is right. And, and I'm going to, I haven't thought about this carefully listeners, but as I was listening to Mike, it came to me. So I've got three kids, so I, I can talk to this one. <laughs> uh, yeah. And, you, you know, for us, one of the things that I think you learn when you have kids, or, but very specifically when you have kids, is that you've got to decide what things you're going to put into practice and not because it takes a lot of energy and it is really easy beforehand to say, Hey, when I have kids, I'm going to do a B and C. It's a mm -hmm. lot harder to do, you know, well, I'm always, we're always going to do this, the bedtimes. But I think these kind of ideological points of view come out more often than you'd think. It is amazing that I had, I had a good colleague at another, it's another state. It's not here at this school, um, who very left, very, very, very left. And when I had my first son, um, this individual came to me and closed the door and said, now, I just want you to know, because we lived in an area where there was, it, there was, as you were talking about, there were better and worse, i.e. segregated areas in that sense. And he said, now, I want you to know, I've got all the ways to get TJ, that was my son, that's my oldest son, into the right, to the right school. Sure. And, and he's winking, he's winking at me like, yeah, you know what I mean by white, <laughs> right? He's like, now, you know that I'm, you know, I'm a socialist. I'm all the... But we know we got to get TJ. Now, there's this Montessori school over here, and it has the right kind of people. 
Ah, it's the right okay. kind of people. Yeah. And it blew me away because I would have never expected it from this individual. And I, I think that's exactly what you're talking about, Mike. This idea, you know, yes, we need to be focusing on race, but not with my kids. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, and, you, know just, you just see this two-tiered system and uh, the, 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 way to, the way to deal with it is, you know, by, by I would argue, by, you know, in, improving. Again, I, I think it goes with the school system. It gets to both the funding issue and the neighborhood issue. And so you don't deal with that, that this idea that you're going to, you know, be able to just send people. I mean, we, busing was tried and in, in many cases found to be, you know, not a very effective way of dealing with a lot of these issues. So, so no, yeah, because the again, kids I think who ended up more, getting moved oftentimes got moved because they were thought that they were going to be quote unquote better. And therefore you were just exasperating the problem at the school at which you were kids yeah, were leaving. And, and, and yeah. And then, then the, and then what happened as a result is after the busing, we started to see that, that notion of the, the white flight into the suburbs and so forth. And so, so, so yeah, I think uh, I'm with the libertarians on this one, you know? <laughs> well, I'm glad that we see on this one, we, we've brought you over, but I think we didn't really bring you over. We just took you further to the left. I, I will say as kind of a last note on this, I think this is where Biden is going to have a lot of trouble, not because he has any big policy issue, but, but just because of optics, yeah, ju yeah. just because of optics. And, and it's, it's very disappointing for me who wants to see a solid candidate face Donald Trump in 2020. And no matter what Amash says, which we're going to be talking about here in the bonus show in just a minute. Uh, you know, it's going to be a Republican versus a Democrat because that's what happens in single member districts uh, in presidential systems. You know, it, it bothers me that that Democrats are infighting over things like this. I, yeah. rec I'm, I recognize I'm not one of you. I can't vote in your primary. <laughs> uh, but uh, please, please, let's let's not make this the YouTube moment. But yes, absolutely, Trey. Well, I think it, I've had a lot of fun, Mike. I hope you have done as well. And as soon as Mike and I get done recording the show, we're going to be recording, as Mike has already mentioned, our supporters show. And as a matter of fact, this week, our big issue, we're going to be talking about what the 4th of July really mean, means. We're going to be talking about fundraising. We're going to be talking about a mash leaving the Republican Party. So if any of this sounds like a lot of fun, it's time for you to become a supporter. If you're a supporter, you're going to be hearing this or being seeing this in your podcast app by the time you hear me talk about this. And this is just one of the many supporters only benefits you get. Uh, if you want to see all of them, all you got to do is check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash politics guys, or you can go to our webpage, which is politicsguys.com slash support. If you've got a question, if you have a comment, if you think Mike and I have been crazy and we got something wrong, <laughs> uh, please, uh, just a random thought you want to share, you can actually reach us at mail at politicsguys.com or our Facebook page where we're always having some kind of fun uh, discussion going on. You can also message, message us on Facebook at facebook.com slash page. That's page, And we are also on Twitter at politics guys subscribing to the show really helps as does sharing ep episodes words of mouth is huge and so we would love it if you put those on twitter on facebook so the next time somebody is bothering you on facebook instead of writing that mean letter how about you just share the show with them <laughs> right talk about in a passive aggressive way to there teach you them. go yeah <laughs> <laughs> leaving reviews ratings whatever you can do really helps and we appreciate it the executive producers of the politics guys are bruce johnson wilmer morano andra masker and benji fishman today's show was produced by me trey orndorf we'll be back with a new show on wednesday where we hope you'll join us